0: So Romans 16, verse 17. And here Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. The New Testament says some pretty hard things when it comes to false teaching. Uh, It doesn't wink at it. It doesn't treat it as a a light issue. Over and over again, whether it's Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it's Paul in his general epistles like this, whether it's Paul speaking to to Timothy or Titus in the pastorals, uh, whether it's looking at the things that Peter has to say or John in 1 John, for example, uh, the entire book of Jude... Over and over and over again, uh, we're told to be on guard about false teaching. And often what happens is false teaching doesn't begin in the church, but outside of the church. And then it finds its way into the church. It comes into the church from outside. And one way that we might be tempted to think about false teaching is, well, if we just ignore it, it won't affect us. If we disengage If we pretend these ideas that are affecting the world and the culture around us, if we pretend they're not there and just stick with what we know, maybe we'll be safe. But I don't think that's the way we're to do this at all. I think the best way to arm ourselves against false teaching is to engage with it, to expose it by the light of God's Word. And then there's a second meaning to this word engage, and it's not just engaging with the teachings of the culture right now, but it's also I'm hoping and praying that through this series of messages we'll be better prepared to engage with the people around us in our lives day in and day out. Um, we want to understand the worldview of the increasingly secular culture around us so that we can better love our neighbor and so that we can better know how to witness to them and to share the gospel with them and to bring them to Christ. And so we're both going to be engaging with uh, some, some popular ideas in our culture right now that uh, I'm going to suggest would be dangerous for us to bring into our church. But then even bigger than that, I hope that we're preparing ourselves and equipping ourselves to better engage the people that we're around each day, each week, who do not know our Lord Jesus, uh, so that we can know how to love them. So that's the goal. And tonight's subject is social justice but the things we're going to be sharing tonight are going to affect many of the future conversations we're going to be having in here. So tonight, I think, is particularly important in laying a foundation for some of the things that we're going to be talking about in upcoming weeks. Okay. So before we jump in, I'm gonna get Pastor Merle to pray for us, if he would. Let's pray. So why start with the subject of social justice? Well. This is something that had been on my heart and mind for a while because God and his providence had numerous voices in my life, um, both people that I listen to online and podcasts and that kind of thing, and then several people who are uh, folks here in in Rocky Mount who at various times are having conversations with me about this particular subject. And so it's something I had already been thinking about and, and seeking to grow in my own understanding, And then uh, the Southern Baptist Convention had their annual meeting uh, just a few weeks ago uh, in Birmingham. And uh, while they were in Birmingham, uh, one of the resolutions uh, that was brought before the convention uh, was a document with a statement on an issue called critical theory. And we'll talk a little bit about that here in a few minutes. It turned out to be the most controversial, hot-topic, divisive issue of the convention. Uh, statements were made at microphones, and, and you know, arguments were made there in the, the assembly. And then it, 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 you know, it caused a lot of folks to kind of lift up their head and pay attention and say, what is this thing that caused such an issue at the convention? Because we are a church that associates with the SBC, and because this is an issue that seems to be already causing some divisions... Within the SBC, people taking sides, um, I think it is something that we need to understand. More than that, uh, as I've sought to better understand this subject, the more I've come to realize how this thing, called critical theory, that we'll talk about in a minute, um, it's pervasive. Once you understand what it is, you begin to realize that it is everywhere around us. It's affecting the way people think. It's affecting the way people talk. It's affecting their ideas of what's right and what's wrong. And so, all the more reason for us to talk particularly about this subject. Now, it comes under the umbrella of social justice. And up until recently, if you had said, Justin, are you for social justice? I would have said, absolutely. I mean, listen to the term, social justice. It sounds wonderful, right? Um, I remember, uh, you know, growing up, uh, especially in my high school years, uh, when folks like John Piper were having a big impact on me as I was listening to his sermons. He regularly did a sermon, did sermon series every year on social justice. Uh, the call of Christ to care for the poor. The call of Christ to care for the oppressed. Well, those things are biblical, Those things are thoroughly biblical. And so, yes, I would have said, absolutely, social justice, let's do it. The problem is, uh, as the Christian church has been thinking about social justice one way, uh, the term has come to mean something very different in the culture. And is now, through that door of social justice, uh, I think some very ungodly and unworldly ideas are beginning to find their way into the church. So what we're going to do is two things tonight. First, I'm going to try and present to you as best I can this idea of social justice as it is currently understood in our culture. That's the first half. And then the second half is now bringing the Bible to bear on that and to say what does Scripture tell us that would inform the way we think about this particular subject. Uh, If you have a bulletin, I included in there, just to make it easier for you, a definition of social justice that comes from William Young, and uh, I first heard this from Vodi Balkum in a a speech that he gave, and he used this definition, and I think it pretty accurately uh, conveys the way social justice is thought about outside of conservative Christian circles, and increasingly even in some conservative Christian circles. William Young says, While often an amorphous term, meaning people use it in different ways and often it has different meanings, social justice has evolved generally to mean state redistribution of advantages and resources to disadvantaged groups to satisfy their rights to social and economic equality. Now, what we're going to do for this first half is just break that apart and see if I can help us understand what this means. So the first key word in that definition is the word groups. You see that word groups, disadvantaged groups. Uh, In modern social justice thinking, a person's identity is fundamentally connected to the groups to which that person belongs. Your identity is found and fundamentally made up of the groups to which you belong. So if you are a male, you belong to the male group. If you're a female, you belong to the female group. If you're white, you belong to the white group. If you're African-American, you belong to the African-American group. And then rich, poor, heterosexual, homosexual, cisgendered, which means just purely male or purely female, versus transgendered or some other form of, of gender identity. You, you're placed into these different groups, and these different groups are where you find your identity. A word that you will increasingly hear uh, being used today is the word intersectionality. And just for my sake and out of curiosity, would you raise your hand if you've just heard that word before? Just a few of you. Just a few of you. Maybe seven. Okay. So I, I, I bet you'll hear it now. You'll hear, you'll hear it and you'll say, oh, oh, that's what Justin was talking about. Uh, this idea of intersectionality has to do with the groups to which you belong and how the various groups to which you belong intersect with One another. So, for example, use a darker marker for you. All right. Well, we're going to create a stick figure guy. We'll name him Bob. Here's Bob. Okay. So his groups are going to have to do with his with his gender. He's male, but the fact that his gender is is not fluid. So we would say he is cisgendered. Uh, But then there would be the question of what is his religion. He would belong to a particular religious uh, group. Uh, what is his location? Is he a Southerner? Is he a Northerner? Is he from the Midwest? Is he uh, something like that? Uh, his immigration status. Is he a citizen? Is he a legal citizen? Is he you know, an illegal immigrant? Right. What is his citizenship status? Um, who is he attracted to? Is he a heterosexual or is he a... Uh, A homosexual. Those kinds of categories. And the idea of intersectionality is that the more often that you are a minority, the more you have been disadvantaged. Uh, The more you have been oppressed. And so, uh, if you are a white female, you've automatically been oppressed because you are part of a group that has been oppressed a group called females. But if you are a black lesbian female, you have been more oppressed than a white female who is a heterosexual. This is the intersecting of the different groups to which you belong. And the more minority groups to which you belong, the more those intersect, the more your disadvantages, the more your oppression grows. So uh, a scale of oppression, are you of a minority race? Are you of a minority religion? Are you uh, not cisgender, but some other gender? Are you a minority sexuality? Are you a minority in your immigration status? Are you disadvantaged due to a broken home? Are you disadvantaged because you come from a poor area? Uh, on and on, these kinds of things go. But the point is, your identity comes from the group to which you belong. Uh, the second word or words to notice in William Young's definition is the word advantages and disadvantaged. Okay? Now, this is the lingo right now, advantages and disadvantaged. Uh, this is where you get into the idea of what is called critical identity theory. So critical theory is a form of Marxism. So we need to go back a little bit further. Um, Marxism is the idea that class distinctions ultimately lead to conflict as lower classes rebel against upper classes. So here's the idea. In any society, you're going to have people who have things And you're going to have people that that don't have as many things. You're going to have the haves and the have-nots. And what Marx said is that as long as you have have haves and have-nots, you're always going to be just counting down the days until conflict and revolution. Because eventually the have-nots are going to rebel against the haves. Eventually they're going to create some kind of revolution in order to have what the haves have. Does that make sense? Okay? So this is Marxism, right? That, that as long as there is inequality in a society where some have and some do not have, you're, you're counting down the days to conflict, and conflict is inevitable. Critical theory uh, came out of Germany in the 1930s. Uh, it was a form of Marxism, and what it did is it lumped people into these groups and identified which groups have and which groups do not have, particularly when it comes to power or a voice, as people would say. In a society, which groups have the power, which groups have a voice that is shaping society, and which groups do not have power, and which groups do not seem to have a voice? When you do social justice from a critical theory perspective, what you're trying to do is take power and a voice from the groups that have more of it and give it to those who have had less of it in order to bring an equilibrium. The idea is to try and have a happy, peaceful society. That's the goal. The goal of, of this kind of social justice, even the goal of Marxism, when rightly understood, was to try and have a, a, a perfect world. It was John Lennon imagined kind of stuff, right? Um, and the way it was trying to get there was by uh, preventing the conflict that comes when some people in a society don't have and others do. And so if we're going to prevent that conflict, we need to find a way to take the power and the voice that some groups have and others don't and and cause it to be shared. Uh, Most of the time, the groups with too little power in a society are minority groups, and the groups that are thought to have too much power or voice in a society are majority groups. Um, the main exception to this is the male-female dynamic, because there are actually more females than males uh, in the culture, uh, in a society, and yet males uh, are typically looked at as the advantaged, and females are looked at as the disadvantaged. Next thing I want you to see in William Young's definition is the term state redistribution. State redistribution. Uh, Since only government has the authority to give and take away power and resources from one group and give it to another group within a society, this view of social justice appeals to the state to bring about the equality that it wants. In other words, how are we going to take power in the voice that that this group has a lot of and this group has very little of, how are we going to redistribute that? And the answer is we have to do it through the structures of government because those, that's the power that exists to bring about this equilibrium. And then notice the word rights. Notice the word rights. The assumption underneath this view of social justice is that all people have a right to equal power and to an equal voice. And that anyone who has less power or less resources than someone else is oppressed. And anyone who has more power or resources than others is an oppressor. Unless they voluntarily give up their power and resources to others. In other words, in this definition of justice, justice is equality. And equality is people of various groups all having equal power, voice, resources. So if you are of a group that has more than your share and you don't find ways to give your power and your resources and your voice to people who have less than their share, just by being part of a group, you are an oppressor. And so, uh, was it a year ago, uh, there was a lady who graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary, one of the most conservative Bible-believing seminaries in the country, Um, a seminary that produced many of the Bible teachers and theologians and commentators that I use in preparing sermons, a wonderful seminary. Uh, And yet, at a conference, this lady said, white people must repent of their whiteness. That this is what Christ would have them to do, that white people need to repent of their whiteness. And what she meant by that was that if you are white, you have been born into a group of oppressors because white people have historically had more power, more of a voice, more resources than people of other skin colors. And therefore, if you're not going to be an oppressor, you must voluntarily start giving up some of the advantages that you've had in this life to others. To people who are of different skin colors, for example. And that this is what true repentance would look like. In this view, right and wrong and good and evil are redefined in terms of this equality. So any organization, for example, that refuses to affirm and empower an oppressed group is wicked. You may scratch your head and say, why do all these people hate Chick-fil-A? Christians love Chick-fil-A. I mean, right there, there's this whole Chick-fil-A thing where where, where Christians are saying in heaven, it'll be all Chick-fil-A all the time. Right? I mean, people just love. And yet, you look at at New York City, for example, or what just happened in Austin, Texas, where they kicked Chick fil A out of the airport. And you're like, why do these unbelievers hate Chick fil A? Well, it's because, in their view, one group of oppressed peoples is a group called homosexuals. And since the uh, owners of Chick fil A have supported groups like the Family Research Council, that speak out against homosexuality, they see Chick-fil-A as participating in oppression. That here is a group, homosexuals, who have had very little voice and very little power in the past, and therefore, if we're going to have social justice, they're the group we need to be lifting up. They're the voice we need to be listening to. They're the ones we need to be empowering. And here comes Chick-fil-A, and look at they are continuing the oppression because they won't support it. We're seeing this um, with universities, Uh, Christian universities, for example. uh, Canada is ahead of the game. Uh, They're ahead of the U.S. on this. And recently you may have seen where the, the legal association in Canada said that they will not grant legal licenses to Christians who graduate from Christian law schools in Canada if those law schools hold to a stance that does not affirm homosexuality. Um, recently, Yale Law School. Uh, Yale Law School gives all kinds of scholarships and paid internships to their law students when they're plugged in to different organizations to try and get legal experience. But Yale University just announced that they are going to now not give those same opportunities to any student who chooses to work at a Christian law firm or legal agency or any organization that does not affirm homosexuality. And so the idea here is that if you are against these groups that have been oppressed, if you are against the minority groups, you are still an oppressor. And what you are doing is evil and what you are doing is wicked. So it is a redefinition of right and wrong. So there are two great aims For social justice warriors in our day. And that's become a common term that they would use to describe themselves. I'm a social justice warrior. One great aim of a social justice warrior is to give a greater voice to disadvantaged groups. And a smaller voice to advantaged groups. So in politics, we want to see more leaders who represent disadvantaged groups. So Social justice warriors are working hard to get any minority group elected, whether it be women elected into political office, whether it be homosexuals elected to political office, whether it be Muslims or Hispanics or any minority group elected to political office. That's a win because you're giving somebody of that oppressed group a position of greater power and voice, which is what their group has been missing. Uh, When it comes to the study of history, and critical theory has been applied to history now for for many, many years, and now it's in many of the books that you would read about history, critical theory says we need to stop paying attention to the people of the past who had the power and the resources and their voice. We've given enough attention to them. Let's hear the voices of those who did not have the power and the resources. So um, I love history. I listen to a lot of history podcasts. And it's very detectable that there is a movement now to say, let's let's not listen to to what George Washington said again. Let's not listen to what Thomas Jefferson said again. What did the slave in Thomas Jefferson's house have to say? Let's let's give a voice, right, to the the wife of this person. It's looking to the minority group and saying, these are the people whose voices we haven't heard. Let's listen to them. By the way, I'm not saying that's totally bad, I'm just, I'm just telling you the facts right now. Okay? We're not applying biblical light yet. Okay? Uh, but that's, that's what it looks like in history. Is We've given enough ten- attention to powerful voices and people with resources. Let's give attention to those who've been overlooked. It's, it's also why there's been a movement to try and identify which leaders of the past were gay. And if, saying, of course, that we wouldn't know who they were because they would have never said it back then. And therefore, we have to speculate And we have to guess which ones we think were gay. And so there's been a movement over the last decade now of a lot of famous people in history uh, being said to have been secretly gay because if that were true, that's a win for that oppressed group because suddenly there's a voice. There is someone that can represent them. Uh, Social justice warriors uh, are working within the LGBTQA movement. The A at the end stands for in their allies. So uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and their allies. Uh, That movement is to be affirmed, and that movement is to be celebrated. And if you do not affirm and celebrate the LGBTQA, on and on and on, You keep adding letters. But if, if you do not celebrate that movement, you are participating in the oppression. It's also why you will notice that in, when people try and have discussions about these things, they will often say you have no right to say anything if you do not belong to one of these groups. You don't have a place to say anything if you're not in one of these groups because it's time for their voice to be heard that's the same with the transgender movement. Uh, if you in any way question the transgender movement, you are aligning yourself with the oppressors. You're, you're, you're not giving true heed to their voice. You're taken away from their opportunity to be heard. In education, uh, you see it in things like affirmative action, Uh, where you might deny one particular student who, at least on paper, is more qualified to to, to make it into that school, but in order to give greater opportunity and to kind of bring equilibrium, right, that particular place in the school or particular scholarship is given to someone who is, on paper, less qualified, but they happen to be from a minority group. In Hollywood, I know you've seen it in Hollywood, the, the movement to give more roles to people who fit these minority groups so that those groups can be better represented and given more of a voice in culture. So one group, uh, one aim of social justice warriors is to try and give more power voice resources to the disadvantaged and to take it from the advantaged. And then the second great aim of social justice warriors is to change government regulations in order to give greater power to disadvantaged groups. So remember, a whole big part of this social justice movement is we look to the government to fix the big things and to help bring justice. And so this is where you get into issues of voting laws, restricting, uh, redistricting. There's been a lot of debates in recent years about redistricting, uh, voter ID laws. Uh, The social justice warriors are looking to make sure that minority groups are having their voice heard in elections. Uh, Criminal justice and policing laws that seem to target disadvantaged groups. So if they begin to see why is it that African-American males are being stopped by the police more often than, than other groups, is that a sign of oppression? And what do we do, state regulations and laws, federal regulations and laws, to, to make that not happen? Health care for all. Uh, the Bernie Sanders you know, position right now, health care for all, this is seen as a social justice issue because it helps bring equilibrium. Basically, the have-nots get their health care paid for through the taxes of the haves. And so it's a redistribution of wealth that brings equilibrium so that minority groups have the same kind of voice and equality with those who are majority groups. And by the way, our whole talk next Sunday evening is going to be about the subject of income inequality and how we think about that. It's also uh, the movement to remove symbols and monuments that represent people and celebrate groups uh, with greater power and resources. Um, and so there's been movements to say, why are all of these white men on the currency? We need to get some minority groups represented on, on the currency. Why are so many statues around the country of of, uh, white men? We need to get some other groups represented in the statues and the monuments around the country. So that's a little bit of a picture of the way social justice is being treated in our culture today. You're identified with groups. Those groups determine whether you are an oppressor or one who has been oppressed. The more intersectionality you have, that is, the more minority groups you are a part of, the more oppressed you are. The more majority of groups you're a part of, the more of an oppressor you are. And the way you do justice is by giving power resources, helping reallocate power resources voice from advantaged majority groups to disadvantaged minority groups. Okay. Okay. That's a very quick summary, and it was a lot at one time, so we'll have opportunities in the future to keep talking about it. The Bible's teaching on oppression and social justice. First thing I think we need to say is nowhere does Scripture teach that people are to be equal in their power and in their resources. There is no teaching in the Scripture that ties justice to equality in your voice being heard, the amount of power you have in a culture, or how much resources you have. Frankly, it's contrary even to the Trinity as the Father and the Son and the Spirit relate to each other in history. Because the Father, Son, and the Spirit relate to each other in terms of authority and submission. So that you have the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth saying, I have not come to do my own will, but to do the will of my Father who sent me. Submitting himself to his Father's will. And the same thing with the Spirit who submits to the Father and the Son. And so where there is a sense, of course, in which they are equal in power and equal in authority and that they are all God, what we see in the example of Jesus is a willful submission, a giving up of authority. And of course, this this view that everybody is to be equal in power, voice, resources, it's contrary to God's design for the world, a design in which authority and submission are woven everywhere in which some people are entrusted with greater responsibilities, other people are entrusted with lesser responsibilities, and certain people are entrusted with responsibilities over other people, and all of this is to reflect the glory of God Himself, because within God Himself there is this, at least as revealed to us in history, dynamic of authority and submission. What are true human rights biblically speaking. True human rights are not something that we get to make up for ourselves. And true human rights are not something that have come to us from the government. If the government can give you your human rights, the government can take away your human rights. It's not the way the founders of this country talked. That's not how we're to think about human rights. The human rights revealed to us in the Bible are found simply in contemplating the law of God revealed in nature and in the conscience of every man. Especially if you think about the second table of the Ten Commandments. Right? You have a right to life. How do we know that? Because God says you shall not kill. And He said that to everybody around you and He says it to you. You shall not kill. Which means you have a right to life. You have a right to property. How do we know that? Because God says you shall not steal. Meaning you shall not take but belongs to others. This is where our rights come from, the law of God that he has written into this world. Nowhere in God's law do we find rights to equal resources, equal power, equal voices. Those are unbiblical concepts of justice. True oppression is when the commandments of God are violated against a person. If someone murders you, you have been oppressed. If someone steals from you, you have been oppressed. We get our ideas of justice and fairness and morality not from am I equal with someone else in the society, but with is God's law about how we are to treat our neighbor being broken against me? And if others are violating God's law of how we're to treat our neighbor against me, that is rightly called oppression. Justice is always to be rendered by the proper authorities in accordance with God's law and the laws of His appointed authorities. We are not to fight for our own justice. Remember all the time we spent on that in Romans 13? Romans 12, do not seek vengeance for yourself. Leave it to God. And then you get to Romans 13, and we find out there is one that is to seek for for justice for you, and that's called the government. That's its rightful role. But it's not the kind of justice that's being talked about here. It's the protection of your life and your property. Turn to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16. And we're going to flip around A good bit here. Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 18. So this is God speaking to Israel about how justice was to work in that society. Deuteronomy 16, verse 18. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God has given you. According to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice, you shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the role of governing authorities is to bring about justice by following these rules of righteousness, not showing partiality. One of the great critiques, I think, that the Bible has on this view of social justice, critical theory, is it's all based on partiality. What group you belong to determines how I treat you, if I'm a judge, or if I'm making decisions about you. I am to treat you differently if you belong to the male group than the female group, or the white group rather than the Hispanic group, or the legal citizen group versus illegal immigrant group. Partiality is woven into it. Christians serve the cause of justice by helping ensure that the true human rights of people are being upheld by the proper authorities. If it is true that our government has people on the border between U.S. and Mexico in conditions that are putting their lives at risk and is seriously... Impugning their health. That really is significant. That's oppression. Right? Even if they've broken the law, that is not a reason for government to suddenly not protect their right to life. The punishment for coming into the country illegally is not death. Right? That does not change the fact that government has responsibilities that we as citizens do not have. Christians can do justice by ensuring that they treat those around them with fairness and dignity, not showing partiality or taking advantage of those with less power or resources. Micah 6.8, What does the Lord your God require of you, O man, but to do justly, to love, mercy, to walk humbly with your God? If I am rich and my neighbor is poor... That's not injustice. Okay? That's not injustice. One person having and another person not having is not injustice. Now, if that rich person begins to take advantage of the poor, begins to charge the poor person more because they're in desperate circumstances, that's injustice. Because that violates the law of God. God says all kinds of things about using unjust balances and scales. Treating people with partiality. I'm going to charge you more because you're of this group or that group. That would be injustice. Uh, We are to always treat people fairly, with dignity, and without partiality. Put it another way. We are to treat people as part of the main group called human beings. Made in the image of God we are not to then start treating people differently based on these other categories. Look at James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This issue of partiality. Beginning of verse 1. James 2 verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality. What is the evil thought? The evil thought is this person is better than that person. This person is more worthy of honor, more worthy of my love, more worthy of my care because they belong to the rich group. That is sin. That is oppression. That is injustice. Okay? We're to have nothing to do with that kind of partiality. The problem with the modern social justice movement is it takes the pendulum one way and just swings it all the way to the other side so that it says, oh, well, whereas we used to show partiality this way, now we must show partiality over here. You don't fix sin with sin. So in modern social justice thinking, morality is based on Advantages and disadvantages in voice resources and power. In the Bible, right and wrong is not based on that, but on the unchanging character of God and His Word. See, here's the thing. Those categories of people who have and have not, it's constantly in flux. It's constantly changing as time goes by. Which means the way I'm to treat you today might be different than the way I'm supposed to morally treat you 50 years from now. right? It's a morality that is, that is fickle. It's a morality that ebbs and flows. It's a system of morality that is not solid. Whereas the morality of the Bible is rooted not in the other person or what groups they belong to. And it's not rooted in you and what groups you belong to. The morality of the Bible is rooted in God himself. His own character that does not change. So that we can say what was right for you to do to that person a thousand years ago is going to be the same today. Uh, Psalm 19 verse 9, for example. uh, Remember Paul, David talks about... uh, General revelation at the beginning of that psalm and then special revelation at the end. Verse 9, he says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. They're not fickle. They endure forever and they are true and they are righteous all together. And then I think we need to understand the Bible's teaching on individual sin and judgment. Make sure we get this. People's identities are not fundamentally based on their groups. People's identities are most fundamentally built on their relationship to God. Are you a sheep or are you a goat? That's the most important identity. Lost or found? Saved or unsaved? Are you a a rebel against God? Or are you a former rebel against God? Those are the two categories that matter more than anything else in this world. And people are going to be judged on the last day. Not by what groups they belong to but on their individual sins. I thank God I am not going to be judged on the last day by what other white men have done. I'm I'm thankful for that. not thankful when I think about what I've done. (laughs) I got plenty to be judged for. Don't mishear me. You are not going to be judged before God for what other people who happen to be in your groups did. You are going to be judged based on your sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. Paul says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, he's speaking to Christians. He's writing to a church. so This is not just for unbelievers. This is for us who are believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this is very clear. When we stand before God, each of us will receive what we are due for what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. I will not be judged for the sins that you have committed. You will not be judged for the sins that I have committed. You will not be held accountable for sins of your fathers. And you will not be held accountable for sins of your children. Our justice is to reflect that same principle. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 16 said this, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children... Nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. That's woven into the law of God. Even all the way back in the Old Testament law. You do not punish others, governments, for the sins. You don't punish people, governments, for the sins that others committed. Okay, objection. Uh, Justin, what about moments in the Bible where we find corporate repentance? So the, the, the lady from Westminster Seminary said that all white people should repent of their whiteness because of what white people have done in the past. And because of the way we've had advantages and resources and a voice and not freely and voluntarily given that to others. So... Don't we see examples in the Bible of groups of people coming together and repenting, even if perhaps every individual in that group hadn't committed that sin? Um, well, we do see some examples of national repentance, of a whole society repenting. Think about Nineveh in the days of Jonah, right? And that that nation being brought to repentance. We think of the people of Israel in Nehemiah nine repenting of breaking the Sabbath, repenting of beginning to intermarry after that was the very sin that it had led their forefathers to, to be kicked out of the land. And so it, it is appropriate for, for people as a group, as a culture, as a society to come together and to, to repent, to, to hate a sin together, to cry out for God's mercy on that culture, society, or group together. Nevertheless, it is wrong to judge any individual for sins that he or she has not committed themselves, to punish somebody for the sins of other people. So take the example of abortion. I think it would be absolutely appropriate for our nation to have a movement of national repentance over the issue of abortion. I would not have a problem at all If God gave us a God-fearing president who said, we're going to take these days on this year and we are going to mourn together as a society that we have allowed abortion to go on in our land for so long and we're going to cry out to God in repentance and ask for his mercy. I, I would be all over that. I would be right there praying, repenting. Yes, let's hate abortion. God, spare our nation. That is very different. Than us judging people who've never committed that particular sin for that particular sin. And that is something the Bible does not allow us to do. And then we just have to notice this. There is an absence of commands from Christ or the apostles about combating unjust power structures. That is, Christ comes on the scene in the first century... And here are the oppressed Jews under Roman captivity. How often did Jesus talk about we need to take the power of the Romans and give it to the Jews. We need to overthrow the Romans. How often did Jesus talk that way? He didn't. Jesus did not come and talk about combating unjust power structures. Paul dealt with Christians in churches who had slaves. Sometimes you had a slave and his slave owner in the same church. Paul had lots of opportunities where he could have said, slavery is evil, it's an unjust power structure, we need to deal with this. Slave owners, give your power to your slave. But that's just not what Paul said. Now we'll talk about why some other time. Okay? It's a whole special issue in and of itself. Um, if you'll be with us over the next couple of Sunday mornings, you'll get a little hint as to how some of the teaching that Paul's going to give us in Romans 15 really did lay the foundation where a slave owner might voluntarily say, you know what, I'm going to free my Christian slave. Um, but anyway, point was, Paul didn't say, we have, to, we have to fight these unjust power structures. That just isn't the command that was there. Modern social justice theory Critical theory, it divides. It puts everybody into groups, and then subgroups, and then sub-subgroups, and then sub-sub-subgroups. And then says you need to identify with those groups. And it keeps dividing until you're the only person in your group. Right? You're, You're by yourself because there's no one exactly like you. There's no one who's experienced the exact amount of different parallels of things interconnecting in you that make you you. So that in the end, you're just a completely oppressed person and everyone else is your oppressor. This way of thinking ends up putting divisions between people based on group after group after group. And it calls for repentance and never grants forgiveness. It says, you have done wrong to this group and you have done wrong to that group and you have done wrong to this group. By being in the group you're in, you need to give and give and give of your power, your voice, your resources. But there's never a point where it says, you've done enough. You've done enough. No, it just keeps demanding more and never granting forgiveness. So modern social justice divides. Modern social justice seeks revenge rather than offering forgiveness. Modern social justice redefines human rights in an unbiblical way. It redefines morality in an unbiblical way and it redefines justice in an unbiblical way way and now that we've talked about this if you just watch the news read the newspapers and listen to the radio you're going to see it's everywhere it is pervasive and so i just want to plead with us and this is a good way to parallel with what we said this morning be in the bible be in the bible because otherwise your language will change you'll be using the same words the Bible uses, but you'll be using them in wrong ways. You'll be using them in unbiblical ways. Uh, you'll, you'll be talking about justice, but you won't be talking about what the Bible is talking about. If you get, um, if you get yourself unmoored from the pages of the Scriptures, if you, if you get yourself going away from the Bible, you will start using language that the Bible uses, but you're not thinking biblically. So if we're going to combat this, if we're going to hold fast to biblical notions of morality and justice and truth. We've got to be in this book, and we've got to have it shaping our vocabulary and our thinking. Okay, so that's kind of an introduction, because then over later Sunday nights, we're going to get into a bunch of issues, specific issues, where we'll see this come up again and again. But does anybody have questions about uh, things that were shared tonight?